Welcome to the P for C podcast. We are excited to reshare with you this year's teaching through God's Word at Passion for Christ Summit. The P for C podcast delivers rich truths for your life, and we know you will be blessed. This year's theme for P for C 2022 is seeking, looking to Jesus. We now join Charles Cavanaugh for today's message. We hope you are encouraged and challenged. What's the significance of the Christian faith? What's the significance of the gospel? When you say, I'm a Christian, what does that mean? And why would we pledge our ultimate allegiance to and place our complete trust and dependence upon a man who walked the earth over 2,000 years ago? Now, those are, I think, worthy questions, especially if you have friends who are of a secular mindset, maybe some who have some religious background, others who have none. Those are valid questions. And there are, humanly speaking, noble religions which uh, espouse noble and high ideals that call for and claim devotion from their followers. One would expect Christians to think their particular, our particular religion is superior to others. But why? What makes Christianity different? What makes it superior to other religions? Now this message this morning is not meant to be a thorough and complete apologetic uh, statement. Apologetics is that that area of, of Christian study and, and work that addresses questions like that. Um, people, wise want to know, why do you believe in God? Why do you follow Jesus? What about this? What about that? We won't, obviously, in one message address those things, but it is an exposition, and an examination of some very important claims and declarations that Paul made, Paul the Apostle, made to a church in a a little town called Colossae. These claims are meant to show that all the claims of all religions and philosophies and ideologies, of all of them, there is only one worthy of our complete acceptance and trust. And that is because it is focused upon and centered in a person who alone is worthy of our worship. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we've been challenged to look to Jesus. And that is really what the Christian life is it is a life of looking to Jesus. And we've been challenged to look to Jesus through a life of confession, through a life of sanctification, a life of devotion, and a life of contrition. What I want us to see is that all of these flow from an understanding of who Christ is and why he is supremely worthy of a life of adoration, a life of worship. So what we are thinking through and applying in this text today in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19, 
is the supremacy of Christ. As we shall see, we cannot, we are not able to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ too highly. That's important to say and it's important to think. We cannot exalt the Lord Jesus too highly in our thinking and in our living. So this morning, the title of my message is, and, and the subject is um, seeking Jesus, seeking Christ through a life of adoration, a life of worship. The title of my message in particular is Living Life Looking to the One and Only. Living Life Looking to the One and Only. So look with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. And speaking of Christ, Paul says in the beginning of his letter to this church, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. It is as though Paul cannot think of enough adjectives, enough superlatives. And he can't. Even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is but a man. And he cannot say enough about Christ. May that be our sense, our thought, our, our uh, sense of worship that we can't, not only we cannot grasp, but we cannot express how supremely wonderful our Lord Jesus is. I, if you're like me, there's so much of life, so much going on, work and play and family and friends and stuff that it is easy to um, forget just how wonderful our Savior is. Well, I want us to, um, to look at some things. And I, I've thought about how rich this passage is, and honestly, it almost seems um, sacrilegious for a man to try to preach this. It is so full, so rich. But perhaps you can get some sense, some sense of the, the glory of Christ that comes across in this passage. So be, let's begin, first of all, by looking at the supremacy of Christ as, create, as the creator of all things. The supremacy of Christ as the creator of all things. Verse 15 and 16, Paul says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things are, were created through him and for him. There is something of a mystery to um, Christ's involvement in creation. The second person of the Godhead is not mentioned in the opening words of Genesis. If you read Genesis, you don't see a specific reference to, uh, a direct reference to Christ. But when the Apostle John writes of creation, he refers directly to Christ's activity in it. In chapter 1 of, of the Gospel of John, without him, 
There was nothing made that was made in verse 3 of John 1. Now Paul chimes in, as it were, placing Christ at the center of creation activity in the beginning. And he shows us the supremacy of Christ as creator. He buttresses, he, uh, buttresses his argument by stating three things. First, Christ's place in the Godhead. Christ's place in the Godhead. It is altogether right that he should begin there because if you go back and read um, Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Let us make man in our image. So this sort of faint reference to the Godhead is there even in the opening words of the Bible. And now Paul buttresses his argument, his discussion of the supremacy of Christ by talking about Christ's place in the Godhead. He is the exact likeness of the unseen or invisible God. Now, pseudo-Christian religions go astray at this point, almost invariably. This is one of the main reasons, one of the main things we can observe about some what we call cults or a pseudo-Christian religion. Um, Unconverted hearts cannot conceive nor embrace the Christ of Scripture. Their hearts cannot, their dark and sinful hearts cannot embrace this. First, they struggle with the whole idea of the Trinity. Uh, they often cannot reconcile the Trinity. These cults especially cannot reconcile the Trinity with the truth that there is but one God. Um, monotheism it doesn't seem to be compatible with the Trinity to them. Uh, therefore, they cannot explain that there is but one God composed of three persons. That doesn't compute in their unconverted mind. But Paul tells us plainly that Christ is the image of the invisible God. This is the brief statement of the doctrine of the incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Then, in his high priestly prayer to the Father, Jesus asked, And now, Father, glorify me along with yourself and restore me to the glory in your presence as I had with you before the world began. He is the image of the invisible, the unseen God, because he is God in the flesh. Now, I don't ask you to understand that. I don't understand that. That's, should, is that incompatible with reason when you think of the things of God? Is it at all ridiculous to think that an infinite God, an all-glorious God who created us and is beyond all that we can uh, imagine or think would be hard, if not impossible, for us to completely understand? We will spend eternity, by the way, getting to know the God we know. And we will never know God completely because there's too much of God for us to comprehend, to take in. We will still be, in that sense, finite. We will be eternal in our living, but we, we will never finish plunging and exploring the depths of God in Christ. So we see that the, uh, the supremacy of God in, of Christ in creation by his place in the Godhead. But second, we see this 
by his position in the cosmos. The firstborn over all creation. Have you ever stopped to think what it was like before this was all here? Before uh, Orion and the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper and, and all those things were there. And all this around us was there was because in the beginning God created. And it's, it's, a, it's a pretty amazing thought to think that there was a time when the Godhead was completely satisfied in itself as things were. But in the expression of God's greatness and his creative uh, ability and his glory, he created. Not because he needed something, because it was a natural, supernatural expression of himself. Well, um, he is the firstborn over all creation. Perhaps no other word has been so um, misinterpreted and misunderstood and abused by religious cults as this word. I've had questions asked to me by, by people who are deceived by these pseudo-Christian groups. And firstborn is one of the places where they stumble. And of course, just on the surface of it, if you say firstborn, you mean firstborn. I have a firstborn and I have a secondborn, right? And, and in its original understanding, meaning that's what it meant. But um, it is literally uh, so, the one born first, but the term came to have a derived meaning, as many terms do in English. It's not unusual for words to have derived meanings that then depend on context for understanding. It goes beyond the literal meaning. God referred to Israel as his firstborn. Well, God didn't literally, through his womb, give birth to Israel. We, you know, you see, the, you see the imagery now. You see the, uh, uh, the metaphor, this, this little figure of speech being used here. Um, speaking of the Messiah, God says also, I will make him my firstborn higher than all the kings of the earth. So as firstborn over all creation, Christ holds the highest rank and owns all the rights of that position. Over creation. This is a word used to describe the supremacy of Christ over creation. His rank, his right, right as heir and owner, as we will talk about in a little bit. He is not one in a series of eons and angels, as uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses teach similar things there. He is the one and only firstborn. So his supremacy over creation is seen uh, in his position in the cosmos. And finally, it's seen in uh, his possession of the creation. Verse 16, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones, principalities, visible, uh, uh, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by, through him and for him. Now Paul runs the gamut, so to speak. Nothing angelic, demonic, human, living, or inert. Dominions, authorities, rulers, and thrones exist apart from his creative agency. He owns them all. He rules them all, as we will see later. He, is, he not only is the creative agent, he is their reason for existence. They exist for him. 
I think that's important just as an aside to, for us to remember that when we get into sort of, and people get into the study of demons and demonology, and, and sometimes we talk like, uh, you know, the devil is in charge of certain things. Well, I mean, and we go back to Job, and certainly Job was able to do some things to, to Job. I mean, uh, the, the devil was able to do some things to Job. But, he, you know, he was on leash. He was doing God's bidding. I mean, who, who runs the show here, right? We need to remember that as Christians. Well, um, um, so they owe their existence to him. The word in our context indicates that he called all of creation into existence in order. Paul is not alone in his assessment here. He is not the only one who says this. The Apostle John tells us again, go back to John 1, 3. All things were made and came into existence through him, and without him was not any, even one thing made that came into being, according to the Amplified Version. The writer of Hebrews agrees in Hebrews 1, 2 whom he has appointed heir, rightful owner of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. He is the rightful heir and owner. As creator, he is the rightful possessor of his creation. In these things we see the supremacy of Christ as creator of all things. But secondly, we see the supremacy of Christ as the sustainer of all things. Verse 17 and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now, another word may be used there if you have ESV or NASB. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But um, deists see God as a kind of clockmaker who uh, in some way or other put creation together and then left it to run on its own. He is not, they think, personally involved in and with his creation. That's the old clockmaker theory of creation. The, ag the agnostic doubts that there is a God, and if there is a God, he is no, in no way sovereign or personally uh, involved. He's not a personal God. They do not give him credit for the beauty around us, and he must be weak and anemic since he does nothing about the obviously bad things we all see around us. If, there, if there's a good God, why didn't he do something about these things? And to the contrary, biblical revelation declares to us both his transcendence, long word, which really means his otherness, his distinctness from his creation, and his continuous activity in the world by his providential activity and care. You know, there's nothing that escapes the providential hand care of God. Nothing. Think about that. Your flat tire, your uh, uh, distracted driver, your, uh, even your football team who loses, although I, I, as mundane as that is in the whole scheme of things, nothing escapes the providence of God. He is also vitally active in the lives of his people. His active involvement in creation is concisely and clearly stated in verse 17. And he is before all things and by him all things consist or are held together. So what is he saying to us then about Christ as the sustainer of creation? Well first, he eternally sustains all things. Christ eternally 
sustains all things. And he is before all things. In this very brief statement, the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to declare the pre-existence of Christ. The word before gives that sense of just that, being before everything. He ever is or always is before creation, all things in existence, and supremacy. All things that seem supreme, he is before. Jesus himself makes that, this claim, and first in, uh, we'll just look at, look at John chapter 8, verse 51. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my words, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. Benchmark for Jews as to maturity and teaching ability. And... Have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Jesus' own claim to eternal existence, to eternity. He claimed to be the I am that met Moses in the burning bush. Paul then here is restating what Christ has said of himself, that he is eternal and that he eternally holds all things together from the smallest atom to the largest ocean. He is the adhering power of all things. The writer of Hebrews also says that he is upholding all things by the word of his power or as Others have said that he is the one who carries all things forward to their appointed course. Yes, he eternally sustains all things. But secondly, as we think of him as a sustainer, he immutably sustains all things. Ah, that good, big, long $64 word, immutability, immutably. It's an important word in the study of Scripture, in the study of God in particular. And when we speak of immutability, we mean that the essential nature and eternal purpose of Christ does not change. He's not affected by the opinions and decisions of changeable humans. The writer of Hebrews states this plainly in Hebrews 13:8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. What Christ ever was, he always is, or forever shall be. The particulars of the Greek language are important here, and I, I off, don't often stop to do a little, the Greek says this, but this is important here. Um, when the text says, he is before all things, it uses the present tense, 
which means continuous action. So that the meaning here is he ever is. He always is before all things. And then when in verse 17 says, it says, in him all things consist, it uses the perfect tense. The perfect tense in the Greek language means something has happened in the past with ongoing results into the present and even into the future. So uh, when it says, uh, having, having been crucified, you know, Therefore, having been justified by faith, that happened at a point in the past, and the, the results of it carry on into the present and the future. Well, that's the, the sense here. In him, by him, and through him, all things, all creation in this context, have been and are and will be held together. Christ is the unchangeable, cohesive agent in creation, and his eternal and unchanging work as its sustainer assures us that it will, ne- it will not come apart or fall apart without his word. Since he, according to Hebrews 1, upholds all things by the word of his power. You know, I, you know when you have a little tin horn dictator, and the whole scheme of things, that's what these guys are. Who they, you know, they're going to rule the world or they're going to take over these little fiefdoms here and there and they're going to show their power. God laughs. He shall have them in derision. I mean, do we care? Of course we do. Do we care that our gas may cost twice what it did last year and that, who knows, you might drop some dirty bomb somewhere and all kinds of things can happen and do. And yes, those are concerns. We talked about worrisome uh, last night. Yes, these concern us. But these things do not trouble our Lord. He is, he is not in the least worried. His purpose is not changed or threatened. His will will be done. You can bank on it. And so he immutably sustains all things and eternally sustains all things. And then we've seen the supremacy of Christ as the creator of all things, the supremacy of Christ as the sustainer of all things, and then third, the supremacy of Christ as the ruler of all things. And it almost goes without saying, right? I mean, if we say the others, but Paul here is compelled by the flow of his argument to make this important conclusion, and we're compelled to agree. If you look at verses 18 and 19, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. He's meditating on it. He go to sleep tonight thinking about that. It pleased God, the Father, that in Christ all fullness should dwell. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead, he says in a few verses down, bodily. Everything you want to see of God, you see in Christ. And so the flow of his argument leads him to make this conclusion. Christ rules over all. He is the supreme ruler, the sovereign potentate over all, without exception. Nothing escapes the rule of our Lord, our Savior. 
the one who died for us, who rose again, our Savior, rules over all. First, he rules as the founder of the church. Now, we may not make this connection because the church seems now, and you're getting to witness that the church seems somewhat insignificant in the flow of things right now. Uh, it could get worse, in fact, very well may get worse. That the church is but something to uh, show scorn towards, even eradicate. But we're told here in verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. The connection, you get the connection? I don't, I don't get it, but I believe it because there's a connection here between the sovereignty of Christ, his ruling over all things, and his ruling as found, and his being founder and head of the church. The idea here is that Christ is the one who both originated the church or established it and is Lord of it. And we're not just talking about some invisible universal body out there. We're talking about your church, the local church. Obviously, when we say that, we don't just mean one church. We mean the church at large. But we still mean the church. If he said to Colossae, who didn't have these hundreds of years, these centuries of, of time to develop thought church they wouldn't in all likelihood have thought oh the church they would have thought us we're talking about the church local visible tangible to which you attach yourself you should attach yourself your life the body of Christ consists of its head and its members in Ephesians a companion letter to Colossians and Ephesians 1. It's interesting. It goes right along with this. Paul doesn't say it exactly the same way. But in Ephesians 1.19 and following, Paul says, if I can find that 19 with my old eyes, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places, Far above all principalities. So here's the same concept. Principalities and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. You see, there's a connection there. His lordship over the church, his founding of, his headship of the church, and his rulership of, of all things. And so Christ's headship and rulership is mediated, at least to some, in some sense, through the church. So we can't say the church is unimportant. It's that important. But secondly, he rules as not only the founder of the church, but as the firstborn from the dead. Now we saw the term firstborn over creation. Now we see, and he is the firstborn from the dead. Now some would take that, false teachers would take that to mean that he was a, he's um, in some sense, uh, a created being, and, and that, that somehow is explained uh, in, in this whole idea of firstborn. But Christ is not only supreme over uh, creation, he is the resurrected Lord. And that's the sense here. You look, we ought to look at, look at, and if you just want to listen, that's fine. You can write down this passage. But Acts 2, in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, 
Um, and in verse 25, and Peter says, now he's, he's preaching a sermon explaining, remember they asked the question because you had this uh, tongues of fire and this rushing mighty wind and, and people spoke in all these different languages and they heard, and understood one another and understood what was being said and they said, man, these guys are drunk. And Peter said, no, they're not drunk. This is early in the day. They hadn't had that much liquor yet. Something like that is what he said. <laughs> but this is that which was spoken by Joel the prophet. You want to know what's going on? I'm going to tell you what's going on. Joel predicted this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what you see is that. Well, anyway, so he gets to the point to explain further. And he says, for David says concerning him, concerning Christ, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. Now he's quoting David, psalmist. For you will not leave my soul in Hades or hell, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. I think this is Psalm 16, if I recall. And will, you will make me full of joy in your presence. Now, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his own body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseen this, significant, I'm not actually going to expound this passage, but it's significant that what he foresaw was a resurrection when the psalmist said he would sit on the throne. Just saying. Um, and he said, foreseen... This Jesus God has raised up of which uh, him foreseen this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. That his soul was not left in Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus Christ has raised up of this God, this Jesus God has raised up of which we all are witnesses. They were. They, all, they had seen Jesus. They, they knew. And the ones who hadn't seen had heard. They knew what was going on here. Uh, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit he poured out that which you see here. So, so Peter says, much of what Paul is saying is that Paul says it much more briefly right here. What he explained in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Paul states briefly, he is the firstborn from the dead. And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. Romans 1 says, by the resurrection from the dead. Why do liberal theologians, secular skeptics, and even Satan himself, why are they so intent on debunking Christ's resurrection and influencing people to reject it? Why is this such a point of consternation? Because the lordship of Christ, the reality of Christianity, and the reality of your faith all stand or fall on this great truth. If Christ be not raised then the dead are not raised. In fact, it would be worth going back to 1 Corinthians 15 and see that, verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he was raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified that God, of God that he has raised Christ up whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile 
you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished or gone. No hope. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. That's why your faith, your trust in Christ stands or falls on his resurrection. He rules as firstborn from the dead. And in third, he rules as the fullness of the Godhead. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. These two truths are enough, these two we just looked at, are enough for us to ponder and move us to worship for the rest of our lives. Should we do, do we need more? But there is more. In fact, this is the coup de grace. This is the peace de resistance. He rules to the church and rules as a resurrected Lord in order that he may in everything be preeminent. Why? For it pleased the Father that in him all fullness should dwell. And in him, he says later, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Uh, I'm getting goosebumps. I don't know about you. That's as, that's as great and as good as it gets. I mean, this is, this is, the, this is the good stuff. Fullness seems to have been something of a catchword at Colossae. There were, evidently, some, Paul did not establish the church there. Epaphras evidently did, who was a protege of Paul's. <clears throat> Gospel had been preached and taught. People had been converted. Some Jewish people, but a lot of just people who were pagan background. They'd been born again, saved. They'd formed this church. Then some other teachers. Among the body, it looks like, Seem, seems like fullness was a thing. The gospel that Paul had preached was good and even saving, but in order to have fullness, one needed something more, something deeper. You ever heard that? You need to go deeper. You need a little more. You need fullness. But what more can one want than the one in whom all fullness dwells? Christian, behold your God. Even if you're sleepy, that's good stuff. That's biblical stuff. This is Christology. This is our Savior, our Lord. This is the one we say we follow. This is the one who is with us and in us by the work of the Holy Spirit when we drive home, when we rise in the morning, when we walk through the doors of our workplace or school, when we get out of sorts or someone gets out of sorts with us, when that person in the church does something offensive that was really more or less silly and unimportant, all that you encompass, this he is still the fullness of God and he dwells in us as temples of the living God. <clears throat> this then 
That's why Christ is supremely worthy of a life of adoration. For we are assured by these things, not only of the supremacy of Christ, but also the sufficiency of Christ. In other words, he is all we need. We don't need extra experiences. We don't need extra stuff. People who seem to have gone places and done things we haven't to come and bless us and pray over us, whatever. The newest Christian with the weakest faith to the maturest Christian who seems to have it all together all possess as temples of God. He who is the fullness of God. I want you to think about it, but I don't want you to fall asleep while I'm quiet. (laughs) If God's testimony in his word is that his son is sufficient as the fullness of God, that should be good enough for you and me. All at our weakest moments and in our strongest doubts, let us not forget or fail to recall who has brought us to himself and who has given us life. We have Christ, and Christ is the fullness of God. What else do you want? What else do you need? Let's pray. Father, help us to not forget these things, to set our minds, our affections on them, and to live our lives with this in view, to adore the one who has condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. We are a blessed people, and we are unworthy of the least of your mercies, and you have given us the riches of your mercy and grace in Christ Jesus. So help us to live lives of adoration. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have questions about P4C, visit our website at p4csummit.org or you can email us at info at p4csummit.org. May God bless you as you seek to passionately live for His glory each and every day.